Welcome to the Gain Gray podcast. My name is Danny Wiley, and this is some of my story. Well, I guess I can start with my sexual awakening, per oh, se. Yeah. When I was 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there, teenager, young teenager, I worked on Saturdays with a milkman. Was this a sexy milkman? Uh, not necessarily, <laughs> but you'll have to hear the rest of the story, right? <laughs> so my workday started at 6. I had to be up at 5 and leave to go and meet him. Okay. And normally my workday ended at midnight. Oh my God. So it was a very long day. That is a very long day. That's, yeah. I don't think that's allowed. <laughs> uh, not, not, not now. No, of course not. <laughs> oh, a lot of things about that job were not allowed, but... Um, a lot of things about that time are not allowed anymore. Yeah. So I was making $5 for the day and tips because on Saturdays was collection day for, for the milkman. Do you know what a milkman is? Yeah. They would go around and deliver all the milk to, uh, all, to all the, the All the dairy products. Yeah. yeah. So I would do all the collections. So if there was tips... Like he did half and I did half or I did a quarter and he did three quarters, whatever it was. So whatever I did, and if there were tips, I got to keep the tips. Plus my lunch was paid for, which was always two grilled cheese sandwiches and a plate of French fries. Wow. So that was my pay. So So it was every single day you had two grilled cheese sandwiches? Every Saturday. Every Saturday. Yeah, I only worked Saturdays because I was still going to school. Anyways, this went on for about a year. And the funny thing is, is my mother warned me. She goes, he's a single man and he works too hard and I think he might be one of those. So anyways, I never never thought of anything about it specifically. But then uh, one night when we were, he was driving me because my house was most probably one of the last houses. Like he dropped me off as the last house on the route type thing. So when we're, we're driving, and, and normally what I, we, he would do is he would stop in front of the house and we'd pack the truck up so that in the morning he could just do his thing. So anyways, one night he started to touch my private areas. Was this like consensual? Well, this is, this is where the, the consensual comes in. So anyways, and of course I got really excited and... and you know, because I, in those days, you didn't have internet. I mean, you had an encyclopedia, and who has an encyclopedia at home, right? So homosexuality and, and gay wasn't something that was really talked about. So, you know, he started to uh, arouse me, and then he asked. And then my Catholic guilt drove in, and I said no, and I left. And I quit, but that was my, my sexual awakening and that never got fulfilled until I was 19. I had my first actual sexual experience when I was 19. And that was another interesting little tidbit because it was on the train home from Prince Edward Island. I was at my first year university Mm -hmm. and we were in the bar car. There was like two or three other students from the thing. Plus there was this other guy who was there we were just in, we were in the bar car in the, in the trains in those days you had like food cars like dining cars and uh, bar cars and you know we had like the trains to the east coast had sort of like day sleepers where your chair could go down almost into mm-hmm. a, a level thing so that you could sleep so anyways he invited me back to his chambre uh, you know the, the little thing mm-hmm. and to have a beer and one thing led to another and 
that's there. And the little tidbit that I like to remember is that all of a sudden, the rooms were only closed, not by doors, but by curtains. Oh, whoa. So I I was really drunk, so I didn't care what was going on (laughs) at that point in time. But all of a sudden, I heard like on the side of the, the curtain was knock, 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 and it was the porter. My wallet had fallen off into the hallway. Oh, no. Well, I'm glad that it was returned to you. Oh, the the porters in those days were extremely honest. It was part and parcel of their their job to be discreet and to be honest, because porters in those days were black men. Like, just universally? Uh, Almost every porter on the long-haul trains were black men. I didn't know that. It, It was part of... It was when you look at the generation of Oscar Peterson, a lot of black men were porters on trains, long haul trains hmm. in those days. And of course, the long haul trains in those days were quite, they were, the network was huge compared to what it is today. Today it's like 5% of what it used to be, really? you know, 50, 60 years ago. And then again, it was even more longer, longer time ago. So that was, that's my sexual awakening stories. <laughs> My teenage years, I was not overly social, but I did hang out with kids in a church youth group. And we actually went across, we went across North America, went from Montreal to Vancouver, Vancouver down to LA, and then LA back up through the States to Toronto and then back to Montreal, all in what was considered two Bell telephone trucks. So what you need to do is Google Bell Telephone Trucks in the 70s. I think it was 72 or 73. Yeah, 72. Mm-hmm. And basically what it was is a whole bunch of lawn chairs strapped to the floor. We had two Bell Telephone Trucks. We had like 16 kids and three chaperones. Whoa. And of course, a lot of... Uh, we were 16 at the time or I was 16 at the time, and, and most of the people there had their sexual awakening during that, that Oh yeah, sleep romp. away. <laughs> like any sort of teenage trip with your, with your classmates, peers, whatever, that's more than like a day away from home, that's when things happen. <laughs> well, the funny thing about the uh, church youth group was that the priest that was sort of like the, the mentor of people or the one that we that actually started uh, the whole group. I was struggling with the idea, you know, was I gay, was I not gay, the whole thing, how do you know the whole thing as far as that's concerned. And um, we were going on a retreat one day and I was driving in the car with him and he, uh, I was driving in the front, we were alone, and I was, you know, telling him that I was struggling with whether or not I was gay. So then he said, well, look at your knuckles. He said, are your knuckles hairy? And I said, no, then you're not gay. That's basically what he said. Wait, if you have hairy knuckles, then you're gay? I don't know what it was, but that's what he said. <laughs> I feel like there's there's been a lot of incarnations of that. Like, yeah. I remember hearing um, if, if one of your uh, fingers, like, I think if your middle finger is longer than your index finger, then you're a lesbian. And, like, things like that that I was just like, what? It's well, every, everybody's <laughs> index finger is longer than, so that's just somebody tel- telling you that they want you to be lesbian or gay. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's basically what it is, because <laughs> I've never seen anybody that the middle finger is not longer. 
I think maybe there's some people because there, there's there's different hand shapes and stuff, but but mine's definitely like that. So well, mine's huge compared to look at that. Very I have gay. small hands too. So seventies. What what were you listening to in the seventies? I remember in the seventies, in the late seventies, how punk and um, what's a similar genre to punk. Anyway, that started and Scott. it was like well part of that. I guess it was heavy metal or something. I don't okay. know. Anyways, genres that I really didn't like. I mean, I'm still a child of disco, so. Well, I'll you know. see. I'll see if I, I can and, get some and, disco. And of course, that. gay anthems like she's an she's a New Zealand Kiwi who sang the movie about Barnum and Bailey. They're all gay anthems, you know, Celine Dion and all of that. You know, I'm just like. Yeah, were you in were you in Quebec at that time? Like in I lived in Quebec until '82, and then from '82 till 2001, I lived in Toronto. Then we moved into Edmonton, and then we moved back to Montreal in the South Shore in uh, Saint Hubert, and then I moved downtown into the Village, and then we moved to Sherbrooke, and then we moved to Calgary, and then we moved back to Montreal. So you're well-traveled within Canada. Oh, yeah. I've, I've done Canada back and forth about three or four times. <laughs> Are there any uh, any particular highlights for you? Places in the world that you feel really connected to? I really enjoy... I, in 2015, I went to Prague, and I really enjoyed Prague. It was quite beautiful. We went to Prague, Hamburg, Copenhagen, and Berlin. Oh, that Berlin. trip was... Well, it's it's the freshest on my mind, so again, you know... Early on, Alzheimer's, I don't remember all of my trips and all of the things that I've done, but I've been to Europe three or four times. First time, we went to Amsterdam with my late partner. That was a fabulous trip, it really was. How long were you there for? I think it was two and a half weeks, yeah. Well, that's, that's a good amount of time. So, yeah, this, that was before Amsterdam got really busy. I mean, the world is a lot smaller now in the sense that, you know, everybody's traveling, the internet's there. You could talk to somebody in Australia, like right now. In those days, you couldn't do any of that stuff. So the world was a lot larger and further away. Yeah, what did you know of Amsterdam before getting there? Just that it was a gay mecca, you know. And was it? Oh, yeah. We stayed at a leather hotel. It was a small bar. You stayed at a leather hotel? Yeah. What? I have no idea what that even looks like. Well, the gay Please bar is downstairs, okay? You have to understand the architecture of Amsterdam, old Amsterdam, which it's all old. It's not like some of the cities that were destroyed, but it, they're very narrow houses, very tall, like three or four stories. So the rooms are very, very small. Even, you know, like, like I said, the bar was downstairs. That was a leather bar. And we stayed upstairs and I guess it would be considered like a B&B &B where there would might've been six rooms altogether. So shared bathroom, which was kind of interesting. And we had some interesting times there. I'll give you a little tidbit. I'm a day person, so I like to have a beer in the middle of the day. Like there's, you know, it's 12 o'clock somewhere in the world, so let's have a beer type thing. Mm -hmm. So anyways, we're in the, the bar downstairs. I think it opened at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So we're there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and this very handsome man walks in. So we're talking, we're chatting and the whole thing. We're getting along really, really well and the whole thing. So then I excuse myself and go up to the bathroom. And next thing I know, he's upstairs in the bathroom too and plonk. Just uh, like that? Yeah. Well, it, it, it was more like 
It's not the first time that's happened in my life in, this, in that sense. I never catch on until I'm already gone, so it's, it's ridiculous. Like, you know, it's like, duh, they wanted to do something. Mm -hmm. But he ended up, he was a, a porn star, a gay porn okay. star. We actually ended up going to Brussels with him by train. Oh, exciting. Uh, he, he was a very nice man, very, very nice man. I mean, we never did anything, so mm -hmm. it was fun. I was with my late Were partner you then. Mm -hmm. and Were you too exclusive? No, no, I don't okay. believe in monogamy. Yeah, me neither. Uh, <laughs> I think it can be great for some people. And I, well, everybody I is different. I come from a generation of gay people who, especially gay men, who, I think we've talked about this before, in the late 60s, early 70s, right up until the 80s with AIDS, basically gay liberation wasn't gay rights, it was liberation. It was liberation from all heteronormative situations, which was marriage, which I'm a hypocrite because I'm married now, <laughs> and basically just rejecting all the heteronormative, you know, that you had to be monogamous, that you have to have one partner. More along the lines of this, the 60s, where the 60s was the fl flower power generation for straight people. Uh, the 70s were, let's go and have sex with lots of people and enjoy ourselves mm. in sexual liberation. So, you know, that all changed with the advent of AIDS. And basically... And that changed very fast. Yeah, I mean, there was, there was huge amounts of pressure. I mean, you know, you know, history repeats itself. You know, with COVID, you have all these anti-maskers and, you know, all of that stuff. Well, it's the same thing in the sense that gay people were identified like this is not my first pandemic mm. AIDS was a pandemic it just hit a very smaller percentage of the population so this is not my first kick at the can people react then just as they react now and basically you know if if our health system could handle it we wouldn't be having any of the these issues right now mm -hmm. okay in the sense that if people got sick and they died then that's that's what, what what it was. I mean, this is not the Spanish flu, for example, where, you know, 50 million people died. But again, all of the social ills, whether it be schools overcrowded, mm -hmm. not very well ventilated because the buildings are old, seniors not being taken care of properly in facilities. I mean, that dates back. I mean, I remember my my grandmother suffered from Alzheimer's and depression. She was institutionalized when she was 50. So all through my younger life, and she died at 92 of Alzheimer's. And she was institutionalized for 40 years. So, I mean, you know, she had shared rooms between my aunt and my mother. Uh, my aunt actually had a special needs child who she had to place as well uh, later on in life. And I mean, we were lower middle class. We're barely scraping by, so it wasn't possible to, to take care of people. So people were, were put in homes. And those homes haven't changed all that much over 50, 60 years. And that's the sad part, you know, especially some of the smaller private homes, which there's still a huge number of, you know, you have one or two people taking care of five or six people. Or private daycares, for example, where you have one woman taking care of five or six kids during the day. It's just not, from a societal perspective, I don't think it's a, it's a right thing. How would you like to see things change? 
Well, I'd like people to be kinder to each other to start off with. I mean, from my political perspective, you know, the last four years have been extremely depressive. People are angry. I'm flabbergasted that almost half of the American people still voted for dumb nuts. I'm very excited for him to be not president. Uh, yeah, but he, his, his legacy and his trumpets, as I call them, will still, still be there and still forward the, the policies. I mean, you know, I'm watching The Crown and Margaret Thatcher is portrayed in this last series and uncannily, I forget the name of the actress, but Jillian she's, Anderson. yeah, she's doing, she did a fantastic job, but she was a real, you know, bitch. I mean, there is an excerpt from a conservative convention where she really lays the dirty on gay people. You know, between her and Ronald Reagan, they did enough against us to, to really set, set the table. I'm not from that time. What was her stance on Oh, she family values and everything, you know, that gay people were, were bad. And, and, I mean, she really came out and just said, you know, they're sick. It's bad for the, the family unit and the whole thing. It's, well, because uh, the family unit keeps capitalism running, keeps, like, monarchy running, <laughs> keeps people who are in privileged positions running. Well, uh, so... The existence of, of gay people puts a real threat to that because then, then you don't have, you know, all of this unpaid labor by, like, a woman as a wife and, you know, that sustains the husband's ability to work 40 hours a week. When you have more, when you have same-sex relationships, there's not the same division of labor. And so that it can be a bit of a threat to people who are just all about economics and taking advantage of others. Yeah, but if you take a look at other societies, there are East, there are uh, South Pacific societies where they have gay men who actually, you would call it a third sex as far as they're concerned. It's, it's similar to what goes on in India as well. There, there are men who take part in raising the family in the sense that they are they're there, they're a little bit more effeminate, and they're accepted within their society as part of the family unit to help, because families in like the South, in some South Pacific cultures are huge. They're nine, 10, 11 children. So one mother, the father's out fishing and trying to get the food and stuff like that, and the mother needs, needs help. So, and the funny thing is, is that they, they've shown that every ninth or 10th child you're going to have somebody who falls within the, the gay spectrum. Hmm. That's interesting. I've never heard that. Well, if you, if you take a look at, at some of these cultures where they're men, but they're gay and they, they portray themselves more as women, but they, they're part of the family unit. Not, it's just like First Nations where, uh, you know, you have two-spirited people. The whole homophobia within the First, First Nation community started when white people indoctrinated First Nations into Christianity. I mean, that's where that all came into. It, it, it wasn't part of their culture prior to that. Oh, yeah, it's all colonialism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so, uh, you know, it's... Yeah, many cultures have a lot... Like, we, as, like, a white culture, we have this very rigid gender norms. 
So you have, you know, a man is a very specific thing, a woman is a very specific thing, and there's not a lot of tolerance for the in-between, whereas that's not the same with, like, other cultures, and it, I, like, in reality, is not, it's not reality. No, <laughs> it's not, and, you know, as people get more educated on the, I mean, even in the States, I think the percentage of people who accept gay marriage now is, like, at 70. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, what's going on in the States? It's being run by a minority of people. And because of the way that their system works, where they have literally like three levels of, well, they have three levels of government, but they have, you know, you have a separate house of, a house of representatives, the Senate, and then the, the, the president. And for years now, those three areas haven't been able to do very much because they don't agree. So government is paralyzed, just like right now. Government's paralyzed. They have people out of work, their EI, their employment insurance benefits are dried up, and Congress is doing absolutely nothing. You know, he passed, a, McConnell passed a Supreme Court judge ahead of taking care of literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who are desperate. So, you know, I get really angry, especially at Canadian conservatives in the sense that you know, they're, they're going on about, you know, Canada's spending all this money and da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, but generally, yes, there are people that are falling through the cracks and there are people that are... But, hey, we don't have the economic strife amongst our people that they have in other countries because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I say to the Conservatives, you know, that I'd rather have people be able to live properly than not properly at all. Well, and, and also this is brought up, like I know many people who were working full-time jobs and were not able to make the same amount of money that they were able to make on the serve. And so they were, they were running on empty, you know, like these, they were working hard and not able to, to make very much money and not able to save any money. And then suddenly the serve came and they're able to rest and they're able to afford things and, and maybe even save some money. And that is a reality that a lot of people from my generation just don't have. Yeah. And I'm really hoping that this experience will, will really bring up the conversation of universal basic income because that the kind of pressure that a lot of people are under is unacceptable and it's been that way for a long time. Well, and it, the, the issue also has to be around paying people a decent wage for the work that they do. Absolutely. You know, in, in some American states, teachers are paid sixteen and seventeen thousand dollars a year, and if you look, if you Whoa. look at those states, okay, they are poor, conservative, uneducated people who vote Republican. Okay, if you look at the middle of the country, a lot, you know, and just as in Canada, the Great Divide is not amongst provinces or states or whatever. It's urban versus rural, and rural people tend to have more power than they should. Biden only won by 4%. That's a huge landslide by American standards. You know, normally it's 41, 49, 51. Yeah, it's usually you know, very, very Or 50.5 50. to 49.5, you know, unless there's a, a huge third party. I mean, the reason why Hillary lost was because people hated her, and they voted third party. Mm -hmm. That's the only reason why he won. 
So, you know, what can you do? Anyways, religion and sex and politics you're not supposed to talk about. So let's talk about... Yeah, all of those things. All of those things, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think from my perspective, part of my experience of being part of the LGBTQ community is also questioning things, not just my own sexual and, and gender identity, but... You know, if if the dominant culture was wrong about those things, what else are they wrong about? <laughs> yeah. And so I question a lot of things. And, I, and the fact that we don't talk about sex causes so many problems. The fact that we don't often talk about politics causes so many problems. You know, like the... the well, people are so indoctrinated into their opinions, they don't necessarily want to hear other people. I mean, I believe religion is the root of all evil. Not Not the idea of a higher power or God or whatever you want to talk about it. I'm talking about like the church in all of these situations. Yeah, the organization of yeah. it usually yeah. is, is the and, problem, um, not the beliefs. You know, my husband works at a Jewish institution and I'm learning a lot more about Jewish culture and Jewish religion. But the one thing that, you know, and I've watched a lot of Jewish film or Jewish gay films, which, which are very interesting actually. But the one thing that I've found when watching their culture is that they're happy people. They're happy people, and they're not like, you know, damnation, 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 which, you know, a lot of people are. You know, whether it's fundamental Christians or Muslims or even fundamental Jews, I mean, they're so strict within their doctrine, they, they can't see anything past their nose. So yeah, a lot of like rigidity can be really damaging for people. Yeah. Like the, I mean, when you when you hold that kind of structure and and lack of flexibility for everything in your life, then you know what happens when you really need that flexibility, and you know no one is is giving you that that little extra slack. That's that can be very very damaging for your psyche, your sense of self and worth, and and all sorts of elements of your life. Well, I mean, you know. The issue of legalization of marijuana in the United States. I mean, you know, yeah, we, were, we, were, we were told that, you know, during the Trump years that, you know, we have legal pot here that don't, don't ever try and go across this thing. You know, there's so many states now that have legalized it. Maybe they'll try and do it federally. Who knows? But I'm sure Biden will turn around and tell immigration that that should not be a question. I mean, if you look at traveling to the states, which is not my favorite thing to do. Especially not these days. No, because going through the border is very traumatic, especially, you know, in my time, if you said you were gay, it was automatic that you weren't let in. During the AIDS crisis, if you were caught with your medications going across the thing, they could ban you for life. So, you know, and, and now going through with marijuana, Again, you're going to get caught and you're never going to be allowed to get it to go in. And, you know, it's like I've purchased some in my time illegally mm -hmm. and I've used a credit card and they can check all of that. So, you know, big brothers around and I really don't care one way or the other as far as that's concerned. But I'm sure that with Biden in there, the immigration officers will be told that that's not something that they are to ask and that was the way it's always been I mean you know during the Reagan years being HIV positive and, and having your AIDS medications 
in the 80s was grounds for not letting you in, being homosexual was a grounds. But then when Bill Clinton went in, those questions went away. Well, I actually, I remember once I, I went to New York and I like, I didn't think about it. I just, I, you know, I went to New York, I had a great time and I also happened to buy some, some weed at an under, it was an underground sort of place and it was really great. I also bought some really fancy cheeses and both of those things were in my bag when I went across the border and I just forgot that that was maybe something I'm not allowed to do. <laughs> and I was just like seeing all these signs like, oh, you can't bring these things in. I thought, oh no, oh no, I'm gonna have to rely on my whiteness for this. <laughs> and sure enough, uh, white, white uh, privilege protected me. So, But you know, it, those things that you have to be very cautious because the thing about these rules is that they're not universally enforced no but they can be yes you know and, and that's the the that was the dread and continues to be the dread of about going across the border i mean i've been to europe you know show your passport bing 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 in out you know you're canadian not a problem though one time i think it was in france yes it was in france i was wearing my leather jacket my biker's jacket and so they picked me out to go in for questioning. Not a lot, just, you know, what are you doing here? Why are you here? That type of thing. But I mean, the airport, I don't remember which one, the Gaul or something like that, was just teeming full of people. So it was kind of weird to be singled out. But, you know, again, white privilege, I guess, or whatever, you know. Yeah. Canadian privilege, whatever, <laughs> you know. Yeah, because we're seen as very, like, in, especially from, from the state's perspective, like, you know, we're infantilized quite a bit as Canadians, I, I find anyways, like, sort of, you know, we're not seen as particularly, like, dangerous or capable. Um, well, we're not thought of at all. No. <laughs> I mean, you know, Americans know nothing about Canada in comparison to the way we, we, we follow their day-to-day -day lives, so, you know. Yeah, we put on less of a show. <laughs> well, it, it's the other thing, you know, I grew up at a time when if you went to Europe, if Americans went to Europe, you know, they put a maple leaf on their bag to go hitchhiking because they didn't want to get singled well, out. Well, they still do. Uh, and they still do. And what it is, is that there are certain types of Americans that when they go traveling, they want to bring America with them. They want to eat American food. They want to stay in American style hotels. They want, they don't want to experience any of the culture. They just want so, to say that they went there. Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know why they go because it's just like, let's bring America with us. Mm -hmm. uh, and then this, you know, even in historical films, you know, this presentation, oh, I'm American, I'm immune to World War II. No, it's a war, hello. It's not how the world works. It's no, great. exactly. You know, you're American, you're like everybody else. If a bomb falls, then you're dead. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my favorite movies is Midnight Express with, I think the actor's name is Brad Davis. He died of AIDS. Okay. It's a story about an American in Turkey who tries to smuggle heroin out. I think I may have seen this a, a long time yeah. ago. And there is one scene where this beautiful looking Swedish man tries to, tries to seduce him in the shower. And Brad Davis was a very gorgeous man. And that was one of my first 
erotic, visually erotic thing that I saw on screen. I mean, some of the movies, early movies, they did Boys in the Band. They did 50th anniversary redo of Boys in the Band. Which we saw with Edgar uh, Gray. Yeah, well, you know, I have a problem with both the original and the and the redo in the sense that, it, I mean, from a historical perspective, yes, in the 60s, internalized homophobia was rampant. Even to this day, it's it's less. It, it's less, less. But when I, I mean, I came out in... 70, 73, I graduated, that was 17. So 75, I would have come out at 19. So it was, I don't remember, well, I mean, I, I can remember being not shy, but cautious about my coming out to everybody. But f- from, you know, I lived, I've lived all my life as a gay man. I've gone to gay bars, I've gone to gay tourist areas, I've met literally hundreds of people. I've also watched, I mean, I have photo albums from the 80s, and almost every single one of those people are dead from AIDS. So my whole entire generation in the 80s, which I would have been in my 30s, are no longer with it, with us, including my partner at the time. He died in 1992. So this year makes 28 years since he's died. And I've been with my husband for 24. So it's it's crazy. But I've never felt ashamed of who I am and whatever. And when I saw that film for the first time, I mean, that was done in, in a play in 68 and in 1970 was released as a film. It was an off-Broadway play in New York and then made into a film and I was disturbed I mean I don't remember exactly the year but I mean you're talking about mid to late 70s when I saw the film and I was completely disturbed by the the internalized homophobia that was presented for people to hate themselves that much really really disturbed me and film in those days continued I mean Cruising was with Al Pacino was a horrible movie I've never seen it. Oh. Maybe I should avoid it. uh, It's a movie about gay men were being murdered. I think it was in Central Park, you know, brutally killed. So Al Pacino goes undercover as this leather man, and they have all these scenes of within leather bars, and cruising is the name of the film. So you can imagine they're showing cruising in a park. But Al Pacino ends up being a murderer, because he goes crazy. He's like, you know, he does poppers and he goes crazy. And it's like, this is not real. This is not real That's really life. damaging. Oh, yeah. Uh, and there were a couple of other films like that. And then, of course, you know, AIDS came along in the 80s. And then you had all of these very sad and depressing, I mean, true life stories, some of them, about people dying of this disease, which was horrible. I knew people who fell sick and were dead within 24 hours. Mm-hmm. I know people that hung on for, for years and basically just wasted away. You know, my partner was diagnosed in 86. His rights were, were trampled on. He was, he had to go in for back surgery and his rheumatologist tested him without notifying him. 
which was against the law, and he should have been prosecuted. Yeah. So he ended up doing the operation, but he was told just before the operation that he was HIV positive, and he almost didn't make it. Yeah, in the sense that you know he, between knowing that and the trauma of going through a very serious back surgery. Yeah, that's maybe not the right time to say that. No, but I'm just saying it was against yeah. the law for the doctor to to test him without his his knowledge. So we lived with the issue of him having HIV for six years before he died. I remember constantly praying to God, give me one more year, give me one year more year. And finally, in spring of 92, he, he started, uh, he, he died of wasting due to a cow parasite that if you had a normal immune system wouldn't affect people mm -hmm. but because he was exposed and his his immune system was compromised he ended up just not able to eat and sustain himself and he died and it was i brought him home for the last three weeks of his life i had i, I was fortunate enough I, I had private insurance i had nursing and it was hard it was very hard but we did our best and his sister came and stayed with us towards the end and we went out for lunch the, the nurse was there so she said go and have lunch so we went out for lunch and when we came back he started with his death rattle so we we pushed the hospital bed into the middle of the room and we started to play christmas music because he loved christmas and this was september of 92 so he wasn't going to see Christmas and uh, so we just held his hand and told him we loved him and uh, that it was okay to go and that was around two o'clock when we started that and by six o'clock he, he was he was gone and then the the death ritual the post-death ritual starts and you just go into overdrive or I did I mean you know I really didn't grieve until way after the funeral, after everybody had left, and, and then I went to pieces, so. It's really hard to find time and space to grieve sometimes, especially when you're... Well, you, uh, I was, you know, uh, I mean, Richard was an extremely kind man, with the exception of his older sister, his family didn't know about up until the, almost like two or three weeks before. So they all came and visited, and you know, Richard's sitting there and he's like completely gaunt, almost skeleton-like, and he's basically taking care of his family. He's, he's going, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be okay, you're gonna be okay. He's taking care of them. And I just was amazed at his strength that rather than comforting him, he was comforting them. Which often, I, I mean, from experiences that I've had and, and stories I've heard, I think, I feel like that's a, a common phenomenon when, when people are in those positions and everyone else is kind of falling apart because they don't want to lose such a wonderful person. That wonderful person is wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> and he truly was. And, uh, Taking care of everyone. It's, I wouldn't say it's, it's, it's a memory I have and I am comfortable with the way we as a family handled it between me and his sister. It's funny because just 
a month or two ago, one of his other sisters found her diary of that time. Oh my goodness. Um, and she sent me like eight or nine pages. Uh, I mean, she didn't write every day, but she did write during like two or three or four week period type thing. And it gave me a perspective that I hadn't known before in the sense of what she was going through, what she was dealing with with the rest of the family, because basically she was dealing with the rest of the family as I was dealing with Richard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all had our duties in helping this person in his final days. And I'm comfortable with what I did and what we did. The funny thing is, Ricky stayed around for the funeral, stayed with me, and the, the rest of the family came in. And I took the wishes of the family in heart, though I didn't want to. They wanted a, a viewing casket. And of course, he was emaciated, so I didn't want people to remember him looking like that. So I had to have a casket. I mean, if it, it had been me, I would have put him into a, a very cheap wooden box and, you know, basically had an urn there after he was cremated and have a service type thing. That would have been my, my ultimate thing, but I took the family's wishes into consideration and I did that. I don't regret it, but I, it's not something that I particularly, it's not a fond memory because basically they, they took one look and closed the casket and then that was it. That was the hard part for me was that, I mean, we all have our rituals around death and I have to respect that, and I did respect that. So uh, I don't know if that was a good thing for them. It certainly wasn't a good thing for me. I didn't see Richard in the casket type thing. Well, and it's a tough situation because, I mean, you're at a place in your life where you didn't think you'd have to deal with that, you know? I was 35. And very suddenly. You know, I was 34, 35, I don't remember the exact, 92, 36. Mm-hmm. And that's not that's not a time that you think no, about that. No, I shouldn't I shouldn't be burying my my partner, my husband. We were together for 11 years before he died. Very happy years. I've been blessed. I've had two very good relationships, and every relationship has their ups and downs. And you know, nothing's perfect. But you know, there were some very good times in, in both relationships, and I've been very fortunate. So. And I'm still here. On my mother's side, I come from longevity, and my father's side, I would too. My father died of cancer at 55, so I've already outpaced him by quite a few years. So, You're uh, a survivor. Yeah, and I'm HIV positive, so, you know, it's, you know, my biological clock is ticked way past what I should be here from because I'm relatively healthy, but, you know, there are things that are starting to slow down. So mm -hmm. memory is one of them. Without the ability to have pictures, memories are just flashes. They're not real detail. My husband has a very really detail. He remembers everything. He's got a memory like an elephant. So that's whatever, a gift. What, whatever that means, you know. <laughs> I just remember that that's a saying, so I use it. So. <laughs> what brought you back to Montreal? Oh, this is home. Yeah. This is home. I mean, I was born here. I mean, you know, while it's not as good as it was when we were living in Calgary, Calgary is, is you know, they, they, they talk about the Alberta advantage in the sense that the taxes are low and everything like that. But everything else is more expensive, you know? 
Like food was so expensive, housing was so expensive. The only other, the th other thing that was cheap was gas. So, and you had to have a car in order to get around. Because, you know, well, we had a car more or less for groceries and going to the mountains. The mountains are beautiful. That's one thing I have to give. Absolutely. Alberta is, is the beautiful mountains, both Banff and, and Jasper had some really great times there. And, uh, I remember seeing Lake Louise. I've only been there once, but it was gorgeous. It didn't even look real. Yeah, it's, it's there. Actually, on my trip to my, what I call my Vancouver trip, when I was 16, we were in Banff for the first time. So I've had the opportunity to, to go quite a few times. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. There's other things I can tell you too. Oh yeah, I thought we were going to talk about the trucks raids. Well, we can talk <laughs> about that. I can, I can specifically talk about that. So it, I'm just trying to remember the, the, the dates exactly. The final date is of course 1977. And the interesting thing is, is that the justice minister at the time was a Parti Québécois justice minister, and he just died the other day. Yeah, yeah. And he was the justice minister that changed the Quebec human rights legislation to include sexual orientation. Quebec was the first Western jurisdiction to incorporate sexual orientation as a means of, of discrimination or anti-discrimination. And that was uh, set off by the trucks raid in Montreal. Which was a huge violation. Uh, oh yeah, w what happened was, is, uh, trucks was a bar upstairs. It was on Stanley Street, not far from St. Catherine Street. It's a building that had three bars. Trucks was upstairs, it was sort of like a leather alternative bar. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call it strictly a leather bar, but it was, you know, I had been a couple of times. I, it, it wasn't one of my favorite bars. The middle bar was a straight sort of like tavern type type place. And then downstairs was the, the Mystique, which was a piano bar. Oh, I love me a good piano bar. And, well, they don't exist anymore, so. Not really. No. <laughs> There's a couple bars that have pianos, but it's not like it. No, I mean, in the Mystique, Diane Zufren played. Some English-French vedettes, they were from New Brunswick, that went back and forth between the two milieus. I actually saw Jeanette Renault really? in, in a piano bar oh. in Montreal. So, I mean, that was earlier on in her career, but some of the better-known French vedettes would have played in one or more of the, the gay bars, the gay piano bars, and there was three or four. Oh, nice. Can't remember their names, but definitely Le Mystique was, was one of the premier ones. The village at the time was all in the downtown area. Okay. So on Stanley Street, on Drummond, on St. Catherine Street, there was Bud's uh, on the other side, on the south side of St. Catherine, on Stanley. So, and, and Le Mystique ended up being the last gay bar in the central downtown area to close. I think it was 2000 and, it was 2004, 2005, somewhere around there, because we had come back to Montreal. Quite recent. Yeah, yeah. But basically, the, the village moved to the East End shortly after. I think the final straw would have been around the mid 80s. And that's when they started to move to the East End. Very slowly, but you know, bars would start up, mostly bars, maybe some restaurants. I don't really remember all that much restaurants. Anyways, to get back to trucks, so periodically 
bars, gay bars would be raided by the police under the auspices of common body houses because sometimes men were having sex in the bathrooms. As you do. <laughs> okay. Sorry, not everyone. You, you, some, some. You, you, straight people do it too. So. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, that's, you know, you go to bars, you have fun, you, you find people that you find attractive and, you know, sometimes stuff happens and, and that's uh, okay. And uh, from my perspective, I always thought that that was the one place where I could be completely me, that I didn't have to worry. I've never really been involved in a raid. And in this particular raid, I must have missed it by about 15 minutes. I, uh, I ended up going down to Bud's. And then all of a sudden we saw all of these cop cars there. They arrested 150 men at machine gun point. 150, 150. at Yeah, between the, uh, the trucks and the Mystique, they arrested and, and they had machine guns pointed at these men. The legal torture that they put these, I mean, some men pleaded guilty right away. And again, they pleaded guilty. Sometimes they were married men who had wives that didn't know. Some people lost their jobs and some people fought it. And the court cases lasted for five years until the charges were all dropped. Okay. So some of these people went through five years of hell to try and clear their names. And of course, like that's, you know, it's five years of, of hell to clear their names legally, but once that's been placed there, it's real Well, hard. again, Quebec society, even then, I felt was a little bit more laissez-faire. Uh, I mean, you know, the one thing that I used to know, and I, uh, the name of the bar was Le Grand de Volor. On Sunday, it used to do a family roast beef night. And you used to have the mother and the father, two gay lovers, and a whole bunch of children around a table, and they'd all share a meal. And, you know, you'd see the perfect family unit of acceptance within that. And I found that a lot of, I mean, there's always going to be bigotry and homophobia, but generally speaking, I think Quebec society was always less than the rest of Canada or the rest of North America. It's definitely been my experience. So, you know, two of my, or one of my friends, I think it's only one, they're both bank managers, or they were both bank managers. I don't, I don't even know if they're still with us. I haven't seen either one of them in many, many years. So, but one of them was definitely arrested that night and he went through five years of hell. He never lost his job. Maybe, maybe they didn't know. Uh, but as I said, there were, there was a publication called Allo Police which used to basically, if you were charged in court, your name would be in the paper somewhere. They were famous for, you know, going to grisly murders and, and you know, exposing people for whatever reasons that they did. And it was there. It, it was basically a, the National Enquirer of Quebec. I don't know why people loved the salacious, but they did. Anyways, it, it lasted for quite a few years, but my friend was lucky. He, he didn't have those repercussions, but you know, there's stigma involved with that. And of course there's legal costs and, and emotional, and emotional costs. costs. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. So um, the next night, it spread around the downtown village that this actually happened and approximately 2000 men and women 
uh, lesbians and gay men, and I'm sure drag queens and trans people were there as well. It's, that, that wasn't considered part of the, the gay community, the LGBTQ plus 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 evolved over time. It was basically lesbians and gay men, and even to a certain extent, you know, there, there might have been one or two lesbian bars at that time where there might have been, you know, 10 or 15 gay bars with four or five bathhouses. And, you know, so the proliferation of, of gay men's places versus gay women's places were a lot less. Mm -hmm. uh, and that still permeates today in the sense that, you know, lesbians tend to have more house parties, more social, small social gatherings whereby gay men t tend to, well, the whole, the whole thing is, has been changed completely with the advent of the internet. But still the, the, the apps and stuff of, like that. of the yeah. LGBTQ I mean, uh, is, is very shifted towards gay men. Yes. And there's not as much, you don't hear as much about lesbians and lesbian culture and trans culture, and I mean, certainly not at that time. No, no, not at all. I mean, I, I had never met a trans person until I was in Edmonton. And I have about eight trans friends, so. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's... At least. It's culturally, it's not something that, that's there. I mean, television, movies, film, all have have brought to light different things, the whole Black Lives Matters. I mean, people of color are not, I mean, there are people of color in gay bars, but they're not prolific. In some cities they are, but it, even in most North American cultures, there are not a lot of, let's say, black people who, black men who would go to a gay bar. Looks well, the the repercussions for people of color is a lot more extreme. Intersectionality, sort of how you're yeah. how you're uh, treated by by the world. You know, if you're a person of color, then you have kind of like there's that whole strike system that people yeah. talk about, and the realities of of having multiple minority identities is is very real. I mean, you know, the uh, new leader of the Green Party, for example. I mean, she ticks off a lot of boxes. You know, so that's interesting. But the, the following representation the, matters, and it, yes, it, even, even if nothing else, it's yes. it's important that people see themselves in in media and in, in public office, and you know, just just seeing that it's possible is is a big thing in and of itself. Yeah, and yeah. and society is changing, media is changing. I saw yesterday within they had an advertising within the movie and television industry, basically promoting people of color to come out if you're an artist if you're a technician if you're this come we have we have mentoring we have openings we want to have your stories be told that kind of thing anyways to get back to the trucks raid the very next night approximately 2,000 men and women of all stripes and whatever basically went on Stanley Street and demonstrated and the cops were there again and I can remember being pushed onto the sidewalk. They had motorcycles and they were going up and down the areas where we were trying to get us to spread out type thing. And, you know, I took a couple of kicks at the motorcycles as they went by and stuff like that. Very angry people, extremely angry. Rightfully so. Yeah, I mean, you know, both in Toronto and Montreal. I mean, even, even as late as, I think it was, you'll have to look this up, but I think in the early 2000s, there was a bathhouse raid in Calgary. There was... You know, I don't know if you know this, but there was one baths in Toronto. This is after I left. The club baths, it was. They they did. They used to do a women's only night, and they used to call it the Pussy Palace. <laughs> um, That's a good name. And uh, this was in the 2000s as well, or the late 1990s. And 
six cops basically took it on themselves and raided. You know, and you, you of course, you know, when you're talking about a bathhouse, you're talking about people in, in various levels of disrobe, and, and, you know, it would have been only women. So, you know, the, it was almost like they were gawking. It was like, you know, a complete invasion of privacy. You know, it's bad enough, you know, to come in and literally kick down doors, you know, but I'm sure... Such a the, vulnerable the, state. The, the, the women would have been a lot more... I would have thought, at least from my perspective, it might be sexist, but I would think that they would feel a lot more violated than if it was a man-on-a-man -man type thing. They, they were all men officers. There was no women officers there, for sure. Yeah, I'm just, just hearing about this. I didn't know about this at all, and I am terrified, because that the idea of that is horrific. And, and the whole idea of the Pussy Palace was extremely forward-thinking in the sense that, you know, yes, lesbians can enjoy free love-making with various partners in one night if they want to, you know? Uh, and this particular bathhouse did this on a, a monthly basis, which, when you look back at it, was somewhat forward-thinking from a gay man's perspective anyways, that, you know, here you had a business that basically catered to only gay men, thought this might be a good idea to give lesbians a chance to do the same thing that gay men had, have, have always done. You know, we, we talked about cottaging the other day, you know, uh, when gay sex was completely illegal, gay men used to touch base in public toilets or parks in order to, and, and the safest thing for them would be to have their rendezvous right then and there so that they, you know, they didn't have to worry about, you know, Neighbors finding yeah, out and uh, what's going all, on in their all house. of those things. I mean, you know, um, the sodomy laws in, I think it's Texas. Basically, these two men lived together, and they raided their own home. They burst into their own home, and they were charged with sodomy. So, I mean, even your privacy was being completely. I mean, I, I think that was the, the 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 last case where that that was then thrown out as being unconstitutional. But I mean, you know, we're still fighting. Yeah. We're still fighting and we're still, we still have a long way to go. And we have a lot of education within our own community. And we have a lot of education and we have a lot of, a lot of younger people, a lot of younger LGBTQ people need to know their history. They, they need to know the fights that took place. I think it's so important just to not become complacent because what's going on in the States, the Supreme Court ruled just yesterday that, that the restrictions in New York City that were, were passed to prevent the spread of coronavirus in the sense of not allowing churches and synagogues and mosques to have services was, was deemed unconstitutional. So Trump's, in other words, religious, wow. religious freedom trumped all other freedoms, yeah. according to the Supreme Court yesterday. That's scary, yeah. okay, because that directly affects gay people. Because if they can say that for a health emergency, your freedom of religion overrides your freedom to live, okay, to protect people, then God forbid what happens in the States. I really, I really, and that's why I say Trumpism hasn't, isn't going to go away and isn't going to go away in the long term. I always thought the biggest issue in 2016 was the fact 
that he was going to be able to name Supreme Court justices. That was the biggest thing for me. If I had been an American, that's what I would have voted for. And that is why I was so angry at all of those people that voted for third-party candidates, because they should have held their nose. Canadians have a way, at times, of holding their noses and voting. Well, first of all, practically nobody votes for somebody. They vote against somebody. Yeah or they vote for the lesser of the two evils, mm -hmm. or three evils, or whatever it happens to be. Otherwise, the NDP would have voted, would have won in 2015, I think. But, uh, but yeah, all of this to say is that, personally, I think this is why this podcast and, and the fact that Gangray exists, this is why it's so important, and, and the intergenerational efforts that we've put forth is so, so important within our community because a lot of us don't know our history. And if we don't know our history, then that puts us, that opens us up to some danger as well, because we don't know how to fight it because we've never had to. Exactly. And we and can it, benefit from the knowledge of your generation, other people's generations who have dealt with these things. And, and we know from, from history that history repeats itself. So if you don't know your history, you don't know how to protect yourself from when history repeats itself. And, you know, I mean, persecution of the Jews in the World War Two. I mean... There have been persecutions of peoples down the line of history. I mean, there was the African genocide, I forget the name of the country now, in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Rwanda, mm -hmm. Rwanda genocide. It is unfathomable that this is still going on. And, you know, you have to be aware in order to guard yourself and protect yourself from history repeating itself. And that's, education is the key to protecting everything that you have whether it's mathematics or history or gay history, it is all important to know. Well, thank you very much, Danny, for coming and, and educating us <laughs> and helping us learn more about our history and more about your history. And yeah, thank you. You're thank welcome. You so much. And we might do this again, so who knows? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Well. <laughs> I fully intend to. Okay. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> the end.